1: Alright, it's me, Atlas Listen, you gotta help me me ma and me son and me boy and uh, Cause Ryan, that right piece of work He's gonna be uh, boomerang, cabbage and potatoes Apparently this is how I
0: used to talk like a mean, evil Southern man. But then they changed my voice. Don't listen to my my old voice voice. (laughs) actor.
1: Don't listen. Would you kindly ignore my old voice actor, and would you kindly keep listening (laughs) to this podcast? i i can't hold an accent
0: that's right everybody today on the show before i even get to the introductions we're talking about bioshock what did you want me to do during that
1: pause i'm gonna ask mary to like throw in a little music right there oh that's really good that's good production values (laughs) do you think there's still music playing right now while i'm talking
0: (laughs) (laughs) i think so i think it's happening right now Um, that's right. I, I I was very excited to do this episode. I feel like especially, you know, it's like we did Shadow of the Colossus, and this is another one of those staple video games that come up in the conversation of, you know, uh, our video games art or or just seeing the the matur- maturity, the maturation of video games over time and seeing that this was like the new wave, like games could be different. By the way, I am your big daddy wizard, Holden
1: McNeely. And I am your cat captain of industry your bold visionary who who sweat of his brow is untainted by the hands of god or government jake <laughs> <laughs> jake uh do you have a, what are your special memories of playing this this video game um i i remember playing it on pc and just like really uh okay this is the number one thing everyone talks about because it's like you can't not experience this uh The moment where after the initial cinematic, the plane crashes and you're left sitting there, not holding your controller, not moving because it looked so good at the time Mm -hmm. that you just assumed the cutscene was still happening. (laughs) Those water effects, the fire effects, the light tower, like they were just running this on Unreal Engine, like two point something or other. And it really was a mind blowing experience to be in a world that felt that like tactile and real. Um, Absolutely. uh, Just the old one-two punch, the shock wrench. uh, Xander Cohen's Fort Frolic is one of the greatest – like, first-person shooter experiences, levels, whatever you want to call my,
0: it? My memory, it was, I played it on console, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was, you know, at the time, this, is all, this always goes back to the time when I was uh, roommates with uh, someone who, who had, like, went through every one of the that generation's consoles, but it was a time when I personally wasn't even necessarily considering myself a, like a gamer or like mm-hmm. someone who, like, but just, like, I would pick up different games that he would bring home. Bioshock was one of them, and I remember remember it actually standing out more so than anything else is one of the first games up there with like Dead Space, one of the first modern games that actually like legitimately scared the fuck out of me. Mm. Like I I like turned all the lights off to play BioShock and everything oh, and I remember so just being like, "Whoa, okay, stop everything, lights back on. I am getting way too freaked out." It, the atmospheres were so wonderful, <laughs> so just 100% there, just terrifying, like, just this, like... Oh, so
1: good. I'm all spliced up. I'm <laughs> all spliced up. Right?
0: Like, it was just so... All, all these, like... It was, like, walking through, like, a, a fucking, uh, you know, a haunted mansion, mm. per se, or something like that. It was just very scary. The sounds, the, the look of everything, just the way that they would sort of unfold storylines to you uh within the environment and just build tension and build that like build these like horrific uh tales of mm-hmm. of of you know d- uh decent people gone awry, you know? And and uh so anyways, yeah, I remember looking at it more as like this really well done horror game uh when I first played it, you know? And um, it
1: definitely it's it has that beautiful arc where like uh at the beginning you're just trying to wrap your head around what the story is, all the mechanics, all the systems. Uh, The monsters are all, or not the monsters, the poor, tragic victims are all, uh, you know, spooking you. They're making all these horror set pieces. And then by the halfway point of the game, you're, like, flinging electric gel at people. You're shooting bees at people. You have, like, three (laughs) helicopter turrets that you've named, like, Binky and Fuckface. (laughs) Just everything, like, these, all these systems, like, for something that begins so so oddly quiet and, um and atmospheric the some of the bigger battles are just such a chaotic like symphony of fucking destruction yeah even though the gun everyone agrees the guns don't have a lot of punch like in military shooters right but like whatever you can shoot bees out of your gross bee hand
0: and that was another thing that was coming at a time where physics engines within weaponry was was really huge you know i I remember at that time at least for me i was first getting my hands on an orange box and playing portal
1: and i mean that was that was 2007 was an amazing year it was kind of this uh we had had the the promise of the post ps2 era was kind of becoming real games like crisis uh the orange box call of duty modern warfare uh Super Mario Galaxy, whatever Uncharted. <laughs> Galaxy is uh, <laughs> incredible, f- fucking, especially I, it, it, with it, physics and things. I, it, yeah, yeah. I, I guess it just doesn't quite fit. Uh, Mass Effect, like this is the the way that we have nostalgia about Yarn the 16- Yoshi. The way that we have nostalgia <laughs> about the um, the sixteen bit generation because it promised like all these new uh, new this new fidelity of expression and possibilities within gaming. 2007 is a hard cut for when like a new gaming generation and a new generation of gamers in general kind of like entered the fold yeah absolutely i am pumped full of mountain dew and nicotine right now my brain is on fire right
0: now before we take a trip into the magical world of rapture
1: let's go to learner research we're going to learner research even in this educational podcast, just the the word "learn" really just makes my makes my heart feel sad. especially
0: learner research. That is
1: just like the word a bad word
0: to say learner. Re- Either way, that we're going to go there. It was formed, <laughs> and all, but more importantly, looking glass technologies mm. and the games that really paved the way for uh, Bioshock. I think that the story it's always fascinating to me because I don't know these stories quite as well as maybe. Um, the origin story of, uh, let's say, like um, a TV show or film mm-hmm. or something like that. Like you just don't, you don't really get to learn about like those early games that came out, you know, or like, or like uh, how um, like Gundam led to Neon Genesis, yeah. you know, or something like that, right? That's more apparent, and the line is the thread is there. But here it's like, well, you got to go take a look at these little or known. Uh, game devs and, and these early, I mean, we're going all the way back to 1990 and looking glass technologies. Um, and essentially, Looking Glass Technologies—it was uh, based out of uh, Lexington, Massachusetts. Then before they later moved to Cambridge. We're talking about MIT people mm-hmm. yet again. A lot of you know, just like um, what was it, Bungie, or what, mm-hmm. yeah, we talked about uh, MIT folks a lot there. Magic the Gathering. A lot of times it harkens back to MIT folk. Uh, so there were two different dev companies: Lerner Research and Blue Sky Productions. Uh, Lerner, uh, uh, Edward Lerner, was the founder. He he was just working on. 3d simulation development uh technology right and this is like right in where it's just this is groundbreaking shit you know like and as you
1: said just a bunch of nerds hunched over like 46 is just being like i figured out how to make the cube rotate and everyone just jerking <laughs> out yeah, yeah. like, oh, oh fuck, fuck. Get the order a pizza and pour the cocaine directly
0: on it. <laughs> um, they were guys,
1: a- guys. I added, I added a texture mapping algorithm that lets you superficially open the windows. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, the, the games um, that they made. Uh, this is under Looking Glass Technologies because Lerner and Blue Sky merge. In order, essentially, they merged during the creation of a game called Ultima Underworld: The Stygian Abyss. Now, it of course takes from the Ultima series, which I tried to look up the history of that, and my eyes crossed. That's uh,
1: 19 extra episodes. Yeah,
0: exactly. I'm not going to get into the history of Ultima so much, but Ultima is just a fantasy realm where that uh, uh, in which games had been made and this and that. So, but um, instead
1: of flat pixelated sprites, Underworld was made with. Jagged, pixelated polygons.
0: <laughs> exactly. Ultima's uh, Underworld Stygian Abyss is a first-person RPG, and it was the first RPG to feature first-person action in a 3D environment. They had different innovations that are ridiculous-sounding li- to us now, like a player being able to look up and down, but uh, that it, uh, it, it not being, uh, it not being li- linear and therefore allowing for emergent gameplay. This is like early-ass dungeon crawling. So, essentially, like, you're kind of free to roam these dungeons. There's... Was this
1: before after Bethesda got uh, uh, Elder Scrolls going? Shit,
0: I, I'm not even sure. This is 1992, I think, uh, It might have beaten it. Uh, so, it might have beaten
1: it? I'm lo- I'm just looking at uh, the screenshots, and it feels very, uh, you know, that early era um, Elder Scrolls. By show. the way,
0: my mind was blown when I saw the other game that they were known for, Looking Glass, at that time. John Madden Football 93. <laughs> Which is like shocking me, as I remember that game.
1: That's a Bethesda too. Did a fucking football game. Yeah. Ah, oh God. How weird is that? Just East Coast nerds. So there's this guy, Paul
0: Norath, an employee for Origin Systems. He sets out to make an RPG set in Paul the. Paul Norath,
1: ulti- also my favorite character from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, continue. <laughs> uh,
0: that's right, Paul. Paul Norath. <laughs> Paul Norath. That's amazing. All right, so it was. Uh, he set out to make an we do, RPG. We do quality work here. <laughs> We're really working hard over here. He set out to make an RPG. set set in the ultima series that built off of what a game called dungeon master was trying to do which is another sort of dungeon crawler attempting to kind of make that happen uh that had that had a first person experience he writes a design document in 1990 and he contracts a friend doug weick to create a concept art and um uh and through this they found blue sky productions to make the game like an offshoot of origin Uh, of Origin Systems. So anyways, the team consists of Nurath Wyke and a recent MIT grad named Doug Church who was brought on as a programmer. They struggled, though, with the texture mapping, so they contract Chris Green at Learner Research. This is how Learner Research starts to get involved as well. So this is before, by the way, I'm trying to thread the needle here right, just right. This is before Looking Glass Technologies is established, but they have brought in a guy from Learner Research, right? They create a demo and show it to Warren Spector at Origin, and they reach an agreement to have Origin's involvement to make the game. Spector ends up producing after two other producers producers leave the project who he was secretly hoping he could produce it all the while and they put the game out it sells pretty well it's not like a huge hit but it's good enough for them to keep going right so then they move on to ultima underworld 2 with doug church now as the project leader and Warren Spector as the producer i'm just going to give you an insight in by the way of why i'm saying these names doug church is very important mm-hmm. doug church ends up being ken levine's like mentor mm-hmm. when he later joins um to work on System Shock Two. Did I just say System Shock? Because that's the fuck we're about to talk about. System Shock, baby. Of course you got to talk about System Shock. It is is Bioshock is this a spiritual successor to the System Shock series? Do you have any
1: experience with System Shock, Jake? I I I'm, I've watched footage of System Shock Two, which we'll get into later. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, no, I never played the first one. Yeah, m- me neither.
0: But I've always heard of it. Mm-hmm. And it's always kind of been in the background, and because uh, it always has held on to this avid fandom. There's there's just definitely a small group of people that are very into the System Shock franchise. When I looked up footage for the first System Shock game, it was kind of mind-blowingly like rudimentary. What was really funny to me was. Um, In the original release, there was, like, a little – the menu – like, it's a tiny – old PC games are funny to me because it's, like, the actual window of gameplay is, like, super kind of small in the middle, right? And then all around it is all this, like, menu systems and stuff of of different types of complicated-looking things that affect what's going on inside, you know? It
1: helps to mirror the experience of a pen-and-paper role-playing game, which Hmm. is what most – literally all early – Video game RPGs were trying to emulate, right? Uh, and it also, you know, back in the day, the PC market—you couldn't count on every system having a good GPU or a GPU, really. Yeah, just you know, maybe a video encoder. Um, so, like the smaller window meant that the PC had like less. It, it had less. It could spend more time cycling through sound and, like, uh, level loading and all this other stuff while, like, less cycles could be spent because it was literally displaying less pixels. And one
0: of those little windows uh, that were in the surrounding menus around the, the uh, actual gameplay window was a, a thing to click on to make your character look up <laughs> or look down. Like, it wasn't, like, a mouse click thing inside the window. So bizarre to me, like, uh, such a rudimentary design choice. Either way, Doug's Church... Uh, Directs System Shock. It's produced by Warren Spector, the people who worked on um, Underworld, Ultima Underworld 2, or Ultima Underworld, The Stygian Abyss, and Ultima Underworld 2. Uh, two games that, if you're curious, like as curious as I am about the history of Bioshock, and system shock before it definitely give a gander at just some of the some uh videos or even images of those games because those really are the fucking like great grandfathers (laughs) of this franchise and it's so bizarre to see the like the plots are terrible the voice acting is even more horrible the you know but it was really one of the first games that allowed you to just explore a massive dungeon i think there were five there are five floors to the to the dungeon in the first ultima underworld 2 and or ultima underworld rather and uh but the actual maps of them they're huge and and just you could just just spend time getting lost there one thing i love about it is on the map itself if you pull up the map window Mm -hmm. you can actually take notes on the map which i love that kind of level of like getting into a game you know kind of reminds me a little bit of veteran odyssey where you have to actually map out make the map yourself which Mm -hmm. again i love doing that anywho uh system shock uh they 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 have major input from designer austin grossman and co-head paul uh nerath uh, they it's set aboard a space station in a cyberpunk vision of the year 2072. You play a hacker trying to stop an evil AI named Shodan. They wanted to stream. That's the
1: green uh cyber lady on the cover. Yes, that's is- no on the cover. Some gross. The gross hacker dude's on the cover of the first one. Shodan's on the cover of the second one. And then they act like it's a big surprise when Shodan's the villain in the second one. Yeah. It's very dumb because she's on the fucking box.
0: I'll get to that in a <laughs> second. But that actually is going to come into play a lot, too, in terms of Ken Levine's design choices. But Ken Levine, not involved just, just yet. Uh, one thing that uh, Doug Church said about Shodan... Was that he 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 uh, that he stumbled into a nice villain with Shodan, and that she could routinely and directly affect the player's gameplay in non-final ways. Uh, and also, uh, an interesting thing about this game is they they wanted to streamline the Underworld games mechanics into a more integrated whole, and they wanted to get away from the dungeons and the fantasy genre by putting it in this in this place. But um, they they also wanted to get rid of uh, like dialogue trees and put more focus on exploration. In order to do this, they decided uh, that the plot is instead conveyed by email messages and log disks, many of which were recorded by dead NPCs. Grossman referred to it as a series of short speeches from people that when put together gave you the history of a place. This may actually be one of the first implementations of fucking logs Like, you now know them. Oh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Bioshock is filled with them. It's one of the staples of Bioshock. And it's become a mechanic in games that people now almost kind of roll their eyes at. Or they're sort of like, oh, every game has, like, the recording that you find of the person conveying the plot to you now. Oh, back, uh, you know. It's just such a
1: brilliant, believable. So much of what uh, these games do right is understand the limitations of their systems. And tell the best story possible within those limitations rather than trying to like put like put like clumsily punch a hole. And, you know, people are like, that's you're not really you're not really do-. like at the time. And even to this day, having a fully fleshed out character go like, hey, I'm a person. I'm here to tell you this would result in just like a clumsy sprite or like a blocky character being like, hello, I am a per- hello you have to save this thing get right. the blue key right. whereas the logs um you know you mo- you know why you're not seeing them and as long as the vo- the vocal performance is good you you buy it it's yeah okay totally
0: especially you- if you're allowed to like continue to explore the environment while the log is playing mm-hmm. so you really never feel like you're pulled out of the game to be explained plot and then put back in it, right? You're all. It's always just, like, immersive as fuck in the game. It's always coming from the environment. I found this they tape. They call that
1: immersive bubble the magic circle in video game computers. Ah, really? Yeah. That might come up later. It might not. Interesting.
0: Uh, so one other thing about System Shock that I thought was interesting is I always like to learn about, like, how design is approached in games. And the design for this one started with writing little minutes of gameplay documents. So they would uh, – Right, this is an example of that. You hear the sound of a security camera swiveling, and then the the beep of it uh, acquiring you as a target. So you duck behind the crate, and then you hear the door open, so you throw a grenade and run out of the way. (laughs) They were just, like, writing little... I think that's such an interesting, different kind of approach. Like, you're just writing little, like... This is what this needs to feel like. This is, like, what a moment of this game would feel like. Let's – let's now we're going to start to be able to circle around and, like, create this game. So System Shock comes out and, again, does well, but not, like, you know, gangbusters, gangbusters. It does well enough, though, for, you know, them to make another one eventually. Um, and that's when – now now I'm actually going to take a, a break from Looking Glass because we have to introduce our key player for this entire episode – Uh, do you want, do you want to do the honors, Jake?
1: I really feel a lot for his experience. And hopefully, uh, I don't want to like make sweeping judgments about our audience, but I feel like a lot of the people listening right now might, uh, have some kind of resonance with his story as well. Uh, Ken Levine was a twerpy Jewish kid growing up in a suburb of New York City in New Jersey. Uh, his dad worked in the Diamond District. flashy boy from Flushing. Basically. Um... (laughs) He uh, was weak. He was short. He had a lisp. His older brother would have to, uh, at school, translate for him sometimes. He was mercilessly bullied. And uh, he would accompany his dad to New York City, which was this grimy, you know, in the eight, in the 70s and 80s, New York City was basically its own kind of version of Rapture, a just dilapidated crime riddled place where, like, the social contract had broken down. Um, he was... Uh, he talks about how uh, there was people in his class that, like, spent every morning hunting him down and, like, making sure to just wail on him before class started. And he just genuinely was miserable and angry and just, like, the prototypical bullied kid. And it was only during a summer at, like, camp that he was asked to write a short play. And it turned out that his the campers loved it. And that was his first taste of writing as a means for uh, expression and approval. Uh, Ken Levine, the twerpy son of a diamond merchant, uh, fucking punches lights out and like laugh as he cries. Ken Levine, the writer, kind of cool. And that like drastically shifted his entire worldview. He immediately began pursuing theater and uh, he studied, where did he study? He, w- he went to school for drama and, uh, he went to
0: a uh, Vassar College. Vassar, yes. Um, then he moved to L.A. for his to start as a, in a film career.
1: Uh, and uh, he's there's a Polygon article called Ken Levine and um, in the Infinite Idaho, and uh, that has a lot of like very key details in his upbringing that opens up an entire insight into his work um, in L.A. He's now, like, taking meetings, and, you know, all these agents are promising the sun, moon, and the stars, and he's, like, dating an actress, and, like, uh, you know, he's he's wheeling and dealing and feeling pretty cool about himself. But as so it happens in show business, uh, you kind of sputter out, and, like, promises get broken, and you find yourself sharing a home with, like, five other deadbeats, and you don't really <laughs> even like your girlfriend that much anymore. And your romantic comedy starring Christian singer-songwriter Amy Grant goes nowhere. Um... And he just kind of has a crisis of identity, and he uh, takes a break. He goes on a three-week uh, kind of vacation to a theater-like festival uh, somewhere in the Midwest, and he comes back with like his eyes awakened. And he dumps his girlfriend. He starts working out. He uh, kind of reforms himself. I feel like it's it's kind of a Hollywood cliche, as many former nerds do, into like this kind of new persona that is driven by his art and isn't shy about it. He got um, metal legs and metal arms. I mean a tan. Basically a tan <laughs> okay. and like you start wearing tighter T shirts. <laughs> Despite this new attitude, he still does not actually succeed in the world of Hollywood. Ah, yes. And so he answers. Uh, A
0: job ad in Next Generation Magazine as a game designer for Looking Glass Studios.
1: Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Did he have any experience as a game designer?
0: Didn't seem like it. Does he even talk about playing a lot of games? Yes. Growing up? Okay. Yes,
1: yes, yes. Um, He talks extensively about how he would uh, escape. Uh, into the world of comic books and video games and science fiction to the point where he describes lonely nights playing Dungeons and Dragons campaigns by himself, which is actually if we uh, kind of go through uh, a few past episodes, uh, Miyazaki from Dark Souls describes doing that. And uh, who- if only they had just found each other, they could have, uh, pl- you know, played the game together. Uh, but also it's defi- also I
0: feel bad for all the like would be you know uh auteur genius nerds that ha- can easily find people to play Dungeons <laughs> and dragons with now because you just go on roll 20 and you get matched up with people I mean we're like uh, honestly new technology I feel like is keeping these like brilliant minds from actually flourishing by you know giving them opportunities to have friends
1: you heard it here first people Holden demands your children become hermits I yell
0: at my parents every now and again for giving me too good of a childhood <laughs> <laughs> I'd be kicking ass right now if they. I was like, "Could you just a little more?" You know, with holding. You have
1: plenty to prove. <laughs>
0: um. So, anyways, uh he answers this ad and he gets a job. I do, do. Do we get any info on like how the fuck he pulled that off, or was he, it just based off of his zeal and his pressed work? At least writing screen, like writing stories. I mean, yeah, it was clear. He wrote
1: screenplays. He had a even though he never really like found great success he did have the arab hollywood pedigree Mm. um and uh considering that looking glass was this kind of cadre of mit nerds they needed some razzle dazzle showbiz pizzazz to kind of like up their game a little right and uh this was new ken levine who was confident and didn't give a fuck and like was cool so they were also again in the it's ah, it's always sometimes ah, Okay, it's that thing where it's a nerd, but he's like the coolest of his group of nerds, so he feels even cooler. I feel like there's a lot of that happening.
0: (laughs) So anyways, Doug Church takes him under his wing, Mm -hmm. and they start working on a game that eventually becomes Thief the Dark Descent. Now this game kind of has a weird evolution. I, I didn't take like a ton of notes on this, but just just a brief overview. They wanted it, it started off as just this like hack and slash. You've just got a big sword and you're just like slashing through like zombies and stuff. And it and this is just the way game dev design works, right? Mm-hmm. That slowly but surely ends up becoming a total stealth game. I think it was mainly, there was one moment in a demo they had where you could actually just kind of like sneak past one of the guards or whatever, one of the skeletons or whatever. And, and um, uh, you know, somebody was just like, well, that's the cool part of the game. The yeah. fact that you could just kind of like sneak right past him. You should do like a whole game based
1: around that. Levine points to his experience uh, kind of shadowing Church as uh, one of his key influences because of the way that he saw how Thief It was able to morph and change and how uh, even though this group of this close knit group of people worked for months on a particular system or a particular set of assets. Church had the wherewithal to be like throw it away it doesn't work like we're we're running after this thing now which if you follow Ken Levine's history as a as a game producer he does a lot
0: also we should say like Thief if you aren't aware Thief it came out in 98 which is one of the most renowned years in video games it was it was it's on the list mm-hmm. of those games um it's a first person stealth game it was the first PC stealth game um, uh, to use light and sound as mechanics, which integrated with complex AI to create again, emergent gameplay where you could kind of take, take areas, however you wanted them and use different kind of tricks and things and try to almost break it by doing different things. Um, that- I just
1: remember that you had a, you literally had a blackjack. You know, like a, a leather pouch stuff with like lead shots that you can nice. whack people on the back of the head with.
0: That's awesome. And 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 it was set in a medieval steampunk metropolis, I should say.
1: So you played Thief? Uh I think I played the demo way back. I'm i t- I'm like these this is like mom and dad's basement memories like flashing for Even
0: me. Even though I me. always loved Metal Gear Solid, I never picked Thief up because I still consider myself not into stealth games mm-hmm. really that much. I mean Metal Gear, I think I was more in it in it for the cinematic quality for the characters and the craziness, you know? Um, but either way uh, it was always, you know, I always knew it as this really great groundbreaking stealth game that was supposed to be fantastic for, for the, for it. Uh, Levine had two major inspirations he cited, which were Castle Wolfenstein and Diablo. Um, that Those are kind of how he, th- what, th- what he used to approach it. Um, so anyways, after Thief, uh, which was a success uh, Ken Levine leaves Looking Glass. He leaves with two co-workers, Jonathan Che and Robert uh, Fermier, and founds Irrational Games. And, and by
1: f- leaving Looking Glass, we mean stayed at the offices of Looking Glass and worked side by side with the staff of Looking Glass Working on looking glass games So much so yeah That their next game
0: is System Shock 2 That's fine I didn't even know They didn't even leave the office No How do you do that How do you
1: pull off They had available off? office space <laughs> That's just, So
0: they were just like Fuck it We'll just be here How did they pull it off though To be like Alright peace We out Also can we use your IP To make our next game And like work with you guys I guess they just They sold it they, I, I just don't even know How you make a move like that In a corporation You know what I mean I
1: mean it wasn't a corporation It was a small game dev studio True. Which if we've learned nothing From our research between Naughty Dog and Bungie and all these uh, other other uh, places or it's just the fucking Wild West. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, their guiding principle for Irrational Games is to put game design first. Levine brings Shodan back and has her become allies with the player. And I think this is, again, another obvious seed planted for what would become Bioshock. Of this, he said, sometimes characters are betrayed, but the player never is, at least at this point in games, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I wanted to violate that trust and make the player feel that they, and not only the character, were led on and deceived. So they have Shodan become an ally and then totally turn the tables late in the game there's and an, uh, betray you. And and he wanted to, and again, we already there's have. A, there's
1: a key moment in System Shock 2 where um, initially Shodan isn't like your narrator guide. It's this other character's doctor something or other She's like this gruff scientist that's like really like, you know, insulting you and just kind of like pissed off all the time. And as you're exploring this abandoned space station under her guidance, you find audio logs from that same doctor. And she sounds like bright and caring and Mm. empathetic. And you begin to go like, what the fuck happened to this lady? Until you stumble across the doctor's room where she is lying dead with a pistol next next to her dead body. The walls fall away and it's filled with spooky green lady. That's awesome. Like panels. And she just starts going like, ha noob, you idiot. Ah, ah, ah. You yeah. didn't say the magic words. And this would have been one of the greatest twists in all of gaming history. It wasn't for the fact that she's on the fucking box. <laughs> it's literally the logo of the game. Um, System Shock 2 uh, has an uh, the, the use of logs is taken to a whole nother level. Um, the way that they stuck to, like, abandoned space station, spaceship uh, environments meant that, like, if you kind of relaxed your eyes a little, like, it felt real. Um, you had the iconic wrench in your hand as your primary melee weapon. Uh, it has one of the worst final boss fights of all time and one of the cringiest final uh Again, cinematics. planting the seed for <laughs> Bioshock. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Ken Levine actually comments that uh, he claims every time he starts a new game I'm not going to do a boss fight. It never works. (laughs) And he keeps end up adding them. But uh, it does amazing critically. People love the in-depth systems. Everything from the inventory management to the uh, weapons upgrades to the physical upgrades to uh, equipment degradation. To the point where
0: now they're still screaming about a System Shock 2 remake, right? I mean, yeah. it's it's the kind of thing where people really love this game. Again, critically, didn't financially do quite as well.
1: Nobody bought it. No. It was uh, most... I don't even know if they had a console release. And this is
0: 1999, by the way. Yeah. Just to give you a sense of where we're
1: at. And um, this hurts Ken. Like, this sticks with Ken forever. Mm-hmm. Like, the the... The idea of, like, striking out on his own, doing things his way, like, having all the people who care about games go, yep, you nailed it, but having the public go, like, snooze, don't give a shit. was why's that lady all green? I don't care. I'm Steve. I, I fucking love Doom. I like Doom clones. All
0: right, Steve, please. What's even in your fridge right now, Steve?
1: I don't know. Fucking Gamer Juice. Gamer Juice. You don't even know the name of it? It's probably
0: called, like... But at but but drink, or no um, man
1: that shit's gay. I only drink dick juice. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh no! I'm oh, no. fading away. The reality. Argh. Oh
0: my god! He's oh my god! He's he's disappearing in front of me. What is this world we live in? What is this crazy world, Jake?
1: Oh hey, what's up, guys? What
0: happened? I thought I was with Steve and seen and seen. Improvisational. We have spent over one thousand dollars on improvisation classes, and they have just proven to be effective to you people at home right now. Oh, me and by me, my mother is very happy with the money spent on those improv classes. (laughs) Please, people, come on! It's an art form. Uh, but they get
1: to keep making games.
0: And he's just he's making kind of softballier games a little bit. He goes on to make a Freedom Force, uh, which is uh, as you mentioned before. This is him and, uh, uh showing his love for the Silver Age of comic books. It's an RPG, a real-time tactical RPG. feels
1: It's like a Diablo meets Jack Kirby kind of thing.
0: Makes me kind of want to check it out. It's like sounds like a lot of fun. It's like they should do more of those where it's not fantasy or sci-fi, but like old school. You know? Yeah, yeah uh comic book style RPG. I would love one of those, you know. I know that I know that's like not new, like a new novel concept. It's but.
1: weird because like superheroes by their nature are like power fantasy. Yeah. Like you just want to be strong and hit stuff. And the idea of uh loading up your superhero game and you're at level one just like gently weak. bopping people <laughs> until uh-huh. you level up enough. Yeah. That's like a sure. little weird. For sure.
0: Uh, And then a a, a game called Deep Cover that was canceled. And a game that they actually finished, but they never released, called The Lost. Oh. uh, Which was partially due to legal issues with publisher Crave Entertainment. But also, in an interview for Rolling Stone, he talked about how that game, just they just felt it wasn't good enough by the end. Uh, It
1: apparently did not run correctly. Mm. And... um, there is actually footage of it because it somehow found its way either through extra ju- judicial or like weird deal- wheeling dealing on the Indian market as a discount game called Agni Queen of Darkness. Weird. Yeah. By the way, it's about like a woman
0: who loses her child and she has to go down to hell to like. Yeah, some rescue. Dante's
1: Inferno shit. Yeah. Um, but it looks real jank, especially – and it's sure. from this, like, forgotten era of 3D gaming that nobody really cares to revisit. He said, too, that he was trying to make – they were trying
0: to make, like, a Zelda, and then he realized just how fucking hard it is to make a really good fucking, like, Zelda-type mm. game that – just integrating puzzle mecha- – like, game mechanics that are also, like, solve puzzles mm. – all these kinds of things. It's just, its very difficult. Also, if you don't it.
1: have the budget of a Nintendo or a Konami to right. pull it
0: off, you're already screwed. Totally. And then uh, Tribes Vengeance, uh, sci-fi uh, first-person shooter, all these sorts of things. SWAT
1: 4. Got to throw SWAT 4 in there. People like SWAT. SWAT
0: 4. Yeah, I saw SWAT 4 come up a few times. You ever play SWAT 4? No, but it was, it. again,
1: along with System Shock 2, one of those highly regarded tactical uh, PC games. So, regardless, you know,
0: they go through those and then it's 2002 we cut to 2002 uh and levine wants to return to a more free-form game with a strong narrative like system shock 2 Mm -hmm. they have a core gameplay mechanic that they're working with based on the idea of three groups of forces um and actually levine says this uh, of this okay Well, I should say the three groups of forces are drones that would carry a desirable resource, protectors that would guard the drones, and harvesters that would attempt to take the resource from the drones. Levine said he comes up with the idea this way. The first idea that I would say that really made it Bioshock came from watching a nature show. A scene involved some predators hunting some prey, and then the prey's mama swooped in and saved her younglings. I realize that, dyna- that dynamic is imprinted upon us. The nature of those relationships is clear without words. The love between protector and protected, the threat of the predator, seemed like a really cool AI relationship that we hadn't seen a lot in games. Now, of course, later, this would pan out to be the Little Sisters, the Big Daddies, and the Splicers.
1: Now, this is where things get kind of muddy, but... Um a lot of, like, core decisions are made very quickly that then lead into, like, other decisions that influence the final, like, flavor of the game. One of the first things they, they decide is they want some place that is isolated so that the player has a good sense of place. And, like, uh, uh, Levine talks about this bridge to New Jersey uh, conundrum where any time a game is set in New York... You always have to make sure that, like, there's something blocking the bridges out of New York. Otherwise, the player immediately wants to drive to New Jersey. Right. Um, (laughs) And so just by making sure that your location is isolated, you just take that out of the equation. The the player is allowed to stay within the magic circle without having to, like, feel like they're being unfairly trapped. They're like, Uh you know, they buy the reality that they are trapped in this place.
0: I see that originally they had a demo they created uh, on Unreal Engine 2 for Xbox where that space was a space station overtaken with genetically mutated monsters. The main character was Carlos Coelho, a cult deprogrammer, a person charged with uh, rescuing someone from a cult and mentally and psychologically readjusting that person
1: to a normal life. The uh, bio in Bioshock was super prevalent in earlier, like, design documents. Like, now they had, like, you know, they had the gene splicers and the editing bank. But it was, like, uh, uh, a lot of uh, Levine's early documents, I have them here, are talking about, like, you feel the carapace grow over your skin and groin. Like, they really wanted the groin? Yeah, no, they wanted, like, (laughs) body horror. They wanted cronenberg the fly shit where like you're just becoming this gnarled up like tumor-faced gross like sea bug thing um so
0: that actually is going to be the second iteration right the first one is this cult person but that's too political people don't like that oh
1: yeah it was also the reason why they went down they went underwater because of a cult. So, so that, the, 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 the,
0: the p- publishers, right now they're just trying to find a publisher, right? They're not into that, right? <laughs> they're, they, you know, and, and um, apparently if it wasn't for the hype around the game, uh, game magazines and websites saying that the, there were people working on a spiritual successor to System Shock 2, the whole project would have been abandoned. Then... Uh, they t- decide to change the setting to take place in an abandoned World War II-era Nazi laboratory. Now, that is, I think, more when this is—especially this is what, from what you're talking about— that had been recently unearthed by 21st century scientists. Over the decades, the genetic experiments within the labs had gradually formed themselves into an ecosystem centered on the three groups— Uh, elements formed in this version that remained were so here we have a few things that are still there the use of plasmids and eve the need to use stealth or other options to deal with automated security systems direction through the environment from a non-player character relayed over a radio and story elements delivered through audio recordings and ghosts of deceased characters
1: this is still during the early like in the design documents before we even get to like uh, motivations or characters or aesthetics, uh, the main thing Levine really wants to make sure happens is that this game doesn't get stuck in the PC RPG ghetto. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there is there are three commandments that he actually writes down for the development of Bioshock. Hmm. Before a big daddy is even thought of, before they like went to Rockefeller Center and was like, oh, let's steal this aesthetic. Like Before anything else, these are the three commandments for Bioshock. Thou shalt not have to deal with an overly complex inventory system. Ah. Um, system Shock 2 had a notoriously pain-in-the-ass inventory system, kind of like the uh, attache cases from Resident Evil 4, where everything had to like fit in specific boxes. So every time you pick something up, you had to rearrange everything and stop what you're doing. Uh, thou shalt not be bogged down with countless interface screens. Ah. Which, if uh, we talked about in System Shock, that half the screen was taken up with like little stat bars and like character sheets and maps and all this stuff. And the uh, third one is thou shalt be led slowly unto the valley of gameplay depth. Hmm. Rather than leaving the player stuck with all these new things and no idea where to go or how to go or what things are, do. You just take them gradually from mechanic to mechanic and mechanic, building iteratively. So as soon as a character, so as soon as a player understands and masters one system, they're introduced to another, and then by the end, you know, they're doing everything that you originally wanted them to do without get them getting overwhelmed. Hmm. Um, so again, it is super important for Levine that he not only be uh, critically praised, but like be a public. Figure as well that his, his works are accepted by the masses as well.
0: So uh, this is around the time when 2K Games gets involved. 2K Games comes in and um, they essentially uh, they they buy up Irrational, right? I mean, essentially, how
1: would you like more time and money?
0: <laughs> exactly, right when they need it too. They're desperately trying to sell it, so it becomes what is it again? 2K. Uh, I forget the name. Yeah, I think it's 2K Boston, 2K Australia, right? Because mm-hmm. they have the two different lines out there. Later, they get to get their name Irrational back. Uh, but for for now, that's, that's what it is. They expand the project from six to 60 uh, members uh, working on the thing. And uh, Levine th- finds the cyberpunk theme to be a bit overplayed. And uh, designer Jean-Paul LeBreton and artist Hoagie de la Plante uh, create a setting that later becomes part of the tea garden in the final game, which Levine uses as a prime example of a great Bioshock space, mm-hmm. right? So that's like one. They're starting to find examples of what they're actually looking for. But the real, uh, the real breakthrough happens on a visit to New York City. Mm-hmm. Levine is walking through Rockefeller Center, and he discovers the uniqueness of the Art Deco buildings, as well as the statue of Atlas. Various other staples of the area. If you've never been to Rockefeller Center, it's the Center, big gold
1: naked guy over the ice skating.
0: rink. Yeah, over the ice skating rink. It, it Rockefeller Center is actually is incredibly impressive. It's a very just breathtaking, beautiful section of New York and it's definitely a place everybody should take a little trip through you know see Radio City Music Hall and all of that and, and yell yeah, at
1: the Saturday Night Live uh, <laughs> audience saying that it's, it's not as fun as you think it is it's actually quite quite a slog <laughs> Just, just stay home and watch it. You idiots.
0: Go during the winter so that you can point and laugh at little kids falling down on the ice skating rink. That's always piss a piss on the
1: Christmas tree. Piss on the Christmas tree. Scream! I am shit the true. On, ju- I am the true Jesus. Shit on the <laughs> Nintendo store. Come on the Lego store. You do not defile the Nintendo <laughs> store. They have that one Game Boy that got bombed in the Gulf War.
0: I remember I, I, recently I went to Rockefeller Center. Not recently. It was a, a long time ago, actually. So I wanted to pick up a copy of uh, Dark Souls. And uh, I remember like I decided to go to the GameStop in, the, in Rockefeller Center thinking it would be easy to get to. It is like in the middle of an <laughs> underground maze that is impossible to navigate. And then when I took the game home, it was scratched. And so I had to go back to that same GameStop on my lunch break. I'm an idiot. Either way, though. He's, he's walking through. He sees this. The, the, the Rockefeller Center started construction prior to the Great Depression of the 1920s when the primary financiers had pulled out. John D. Rockefeller backed the remaining construction to complete the project himself and stated by Edge magazine, a great man building an architectural triumph against all odds. Well, Levine reads about this, decides to base the history of rapture,
1: Took this. dozens of photos to bring back to his art team, which mm-hmm. not even on you know you didn't have your you didn't have your DSLRs or your phone cameras. So he literally grabbed disposable Kodak like film cameras. And it's John D.
0: Rockefeller who the character of Andrew Ryan for at first is is based on. He wanted to tell a story about people who were oppressed who became free and then became the oppressors themselves. And we'll get more into that in a second. I just want to take a quick sidebar and just talk a little bit about John D Rockefeller in case you weren't completely, you know, up to date aware of the history of this guy. This is essentially the oil magnate that you always kind of think about, like the the there will be blood kind of, you know, but but apparently he was actually like um, you know, uh he he gave back his money a lot. Uh he did a lot of, you know, um uh he did a lot of like foundations and things like that. But originally he's an American oil industry business magnate. Uh, considered to be the wealthiest American of all time. He founded the Standard Oil Company, Inc. in 1870. And then the oil business boomed like crazy. Uh, also, he he came kind of from nothing. Like, his his dad was a con artist. His mom was deeply religious. Uh, and he sort of just came out of, like, you know, very small, small the, stuff.
1: Almost the, the living definition of the American dream. The self-made man from humble beginnings. Yes. Becoming a master of destiny of nations of... You know,
0: he spends the last 40 years in retirement. His fortune was mainly used to create the modern systematic approach to targeted philanthropy through the creation of foundations that had a major effect on medicine, education and scientific research. So, again, these things feeding into what Bioshock's is going to be. But you also have to have this other element in
1: Bioshock. Well, it was uh, it was pretty it, it all actually kind of makes sense where, OK, we need an isolated place that's not space under the sea. Yeah. And we need a non-religious reason why someone would move all their shit under the sea. I guess a w- like an eccentric billionaire who wanted to escape governments and gods. Mm-hmm. Fuck, that's Ayn Rand. Right. And so, Ken Levine, being a nerd, had of course read The Fountainhead when he was a teenager. Of course, right? He starts to incorporate
0: Ayn Rand's book, Atlas Shrugged and mainly the idea of objectivism that man should be driven by selfishness and not altruism. Ayn Rand, Andrew Ryan. Oh yeah. Uh, there I you mean, go. I mean
1: it's throughout the game uh, the the guide, Atlas. Uh so many side characters are references to Ayn Rand characters. Yep. It's not it's not even a clever like if you pay close attention like it's fucking Ayn Rand.
0: Ayn Rand was most famous for her novels The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. She was a Russian American. Oh and you
1: needed Oh, oh, this is the mm-hmm. other thing. Uh, That made Ayn Rand the perfect uh, thing. You needed a a, a style of philosophy that lent itself to long stretches of like uh, important sounding speeches and like pontificating, which if you've ever like like, read any Ayn Rand, she loves just dropping giant speeches about someone's like motivations in the middle of her fucking books.
0: Perfect. So, like,
1: it was almost too. The fact that no one had done it before is almost more crazy. Then that they went wild by picking objectivism as this, like, core uh, concept.
0: She was a Russian-American that was educated in Russia but moved to the U.S. in, in 1926. Witnessed
1: firsthand as a uh, communist government just straight up ruined her f- parents' lives.
0: Yeah, I have this great quote from Levine from the Rolling Stone interview. He says uh, – Uh, About Andrew Ryan, he says, he was a bourgeois Jew during the Bolshevik Revolution. The Bolsheviks came and destroyed his family, destroyed everything in his life. That maps Ayn Rand. She's a refugee who came to America because her family was destroyed by the Bolsheviks. It's not really super surprising she became the person she did. Spider-Man was made by Uncle Ben being shot. Ayn Rand was made by her family being destroyed by the Bolsheviks. I hope if anyone takes anything away from Bioshock, it's about how oppression just goes on and on and on, and how ideology can get very muddy once the real world mixes with it. He wanted to say, like, essentially that oh everyone wants to tell the story of someone being oppressed and then they become freed and then they go on to be this like wholesome good person that you know Mm. does good in the world but if you look at history usually what happens is when the oppressed get free they just fucking become also you know they've been oppressed for so fucking long that they just fucking that evil just comes right back out you know Um, whoa
1: a, a, a rich white guy who's come to the conclusion that it's all bullshit, man. <laughs> wow, what a revelation. What a brave thinker. Wow. <laughs> Uh, so anywho, um, Uh, remember when Bioshock Infinite came out and like the tea party was mad that like Americans were the bad guys and then the Occupy Wall Street people got mad because the Vox Populi were also assholes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. People, and and they couldn't handle it. And, and publishers had a really hard time with this and we'll kind of get into this like 2K, 2K has a hard time with choices like that, Mm. you know, and they start pushing back and being like, we can't have the player. Get punished for doing quote unquote the right thing or you know what I mean like oh yeah uh like with the little sisters and what I was about to talk about the little let's sisters. talk about
1: the little sisters so, and the big daddy
0: so the little sisters come out of this approach of objectivism the player can choose to either kill them for his or her own gain or save them but if you kill them for their your own gain like you become more powerful in the game mm-hmm. right originally there was supposed to just be one ending that's what Levine wanted yeah uh but that it
1: was that the moral choice was just up to you but the
0: two, 2k games were like we can't just give people a treat if they do the wrong quote unquote the wrong thing uh and yet if they save them and do the right thing it only just comes out in like they're not as good in the like they don't they're not as powerful in the game
1: right it's also just like like it's it was both a moral like headbutt thing but also Uh, During this time, like Bioshock isn't the longest game ever, and adding a second ending would help replay time, which means more hours played, which means more value for them as producers, as Ah. as publishers.
0: Levine, this was definitely a hard point for Levine. He definitely pushed back hard uh, with 2K on that and ultimately felt... Uh, I still, I think even now a sense of like aggravation that he wasn't allowed to just create his one ending.
1: Uh, in the Bioshock Collection commentary interviews, uh, it's Jeff Keighley interviewing uh, one of the head designers and uh, Ken Levine. Uh, Levine says that the the second ending was like really the only time that 2K like ham fisted. Was like, no, you are doing this. We are putting up the money. You're doing this. Uh, but oh oh so but uh-huh. the little sisters let's get into this. Sure. Uh, they really wanted the idea of these like roaming bosses where you where they were like they could only be aggroed. They yeah. They would not attack you because they wanted to kind of push the uh the limits of how AI worked within video games. Because you know AI is especially at that time. Uh, it's it's when you think about how crude the actual AI of enemies in video games were up until that point you would lose your mind basically like they would just randomly wander around come across your like path and then like just hone in on you but the amounts of memory and processing power that afforded to them allowed them to kind of like expand you know you could have a creature just kind of wandering around with like different motivations and like the idea that this this character could detect you Uh, walk up to you and just kind of, like, hit the ground to, like, shoo you off but not actually attack you was a new thing. Um, The problem was the things they were protecting, uh, which uh, held a valuable resource that they wanted to, you know, have in the game, uh, nobody cared because they were gross sea slugs. (laughs) You can find tons of concept art for the little sisters. And uh, the initial gatherers were these, like, lumpy they had human teeth but they looked kind of like the slugs from um nausicaa those uh-huh. things segmented they were gross and dumb and they were like brown so you didn't even really notice them on the ground um and play testers were ignoring them <laughs> they just did not even bother with it <laughs> so they desperately tried to come up with a new system or, or a new character that would like uh, make people want to uh, like that that would kind of scream innocence and like highlight the difference between the, the uh, hulking big daddies and the innocent gatherers. Uh, one joke design that is famously trotted out whenever people do uh Bioshock retrospectives is one of the artists made just a dog in a wheelchair. Was that for the big daddy, right? <laughs> no, no. For the, for, the, for the little sister.
0: For the little sister. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I was, just, I, I read that. The task
1: was like, draw the most sympathetic fucking <laughs> thing you can. A dog in a wheelchair. Um, at one point, they were, like, these weird little chipmunk-like hybrid people that were, like, skittish, like, like little, like, uh, yeah, they were, like, chinchilla children. Um, but eventually, they settled on the uh, little sister design. They were, they used to be, like, more, like, dollamy, so, monstery. Which
0: is so iconic yeah. now. I mean, talk about, like, just the, the cosplay that has happened since. Mr. Just,
1: Bubbles.
0: <laughs> it's just so, so. An
1: angel. <laughs>
0: It's just it's just so stands out so strongly in terms of design, just like everything else top to bottom in this game, except for the boss fight.
1: But it's but again, if it all fit into that original design, they just wanted a third faction, a third kind of type of enemy that wasn't necessarily on the player's side or or not. But like you needed, But they held an important resource. So you had to engage with them. But you could prepare. You could set up traps. You could. Like level up, you could like ignore them and come back later for them, and that was new. That was interesting, um, and yeah, you could either uh, rip the sea slugs out of their belly, or you could like put your hand on their forehead and they go like no no no, yeah. and then the flash of white and this still not particularly cute little munchkin would be like thank you, and you'd be like wow that I really could have used the atom because I wanna I want to get that ice power but. I feel better about this. And then they kind of undercut that whole thing with the fact that you just get a teddy bear full of Adam later.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, uh, another another theme uh, talking about the Adam, stem cell research and the moral issues that go around it. He wanted to explore that. I think mm-hmm. that was kind of using the Adam stuff. What else? The the mind control. Uh, should we get into it? Uh, fu- by the way, fucking spoiler alert. Like,
1: I don't know. It's one of the most iconic. <laughs> Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's dad. Uh, the planet of the apes was Earth all along. Rosebud was the name of the sled. And fucking you were a mind control. Like you never had a choice. You were being controlled the entire time by a secret hypnotic catchphrase. Would you kindly? It was
0: apparently inspired by the Manchurian candidate a bit. Uh, they wanted to provide a better reason to limit the player's actions as opposed to the traditional use of locked doors to prevent them from exploring areas they should not. Levine have, again, the Jersey thing, too, right? (laughs) Uh, Levine happened upon uh, Would You Kindly after working on marketing materials for the game that asked the reader hypothetical questions such as would you kill people, even innocent people, to survive, later working that phrase into the first script for the game. By the way, just if if you... are actually listening to this without knowing anything about Bioshock and aren't like worried about being spoiled or anything you were told you were throughout the game. Then the person who's talking to you over the com says Atlas Atlas. Yes. The w-
1: charming Irishman who at, at one oh, point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's do this. Let's get cr- into well, it.
0: I guess we have to, that was more in the playtesting section later, but yeah,
1: no, no. Oh, you know what? Save it for the playtesting okay, section. But, it, but anyways, guys, see.
0: you got an inside look of the creative process. <laughs> He says throughout the game, would you kindly do this? Would you kindly do that? And it just sounds like he's being very polite and sweet. Yeah. Uh, and by the at the end of the game, you find out that would you kindly is actually what he's using to uh, to get you to do things. It's mind control. Everything and you had assumed about it.
1: your character was wrong, mm-hmm. uh, which the more you think about, the more you were never quite explicitly told anything about your character. You just kind of assumed it through like a few basic context clues and never questioned it. Yeah. Um, and it turns out you are a clone of Andrew Ryan, specifically stolen from, like, the embryonic phase as part of the massive machinations of factions within Rapture to take down Ryan. And it's- you are confronted in one of the most uh, iconic uh, scenes in that era of video games. You are you finally get to confront Andrew Ryan in his office, and he just says, I'm not going to kill you. You're my son. Uh, like, but it fucking tears me i'm paraphrasing he doesn't it's not, but it fucking tears me apart that like my son is a fucking robot and talks about choice and the uh, the classic phrase a man chooses a slave obeys yep it is and demands you to kill him with the phrase would you kindly and it's. you cannot change it
0: it's so brilliant it actually harkens to our shadow of the colossus episode which has kind of a similar like you have to do this thing and you have no control at the end it's so brilliant and impactful for the player and um like no one's ever gonna be able to do anything quite like it probably like we'll get some other kind of
1: i mean P- games do it all the time now it's almost but a it's trope. but
0: you know what i mean but like in the sense of it being this like massive amazing like surprise and original moment you yes. know um So, anyways, it's this incredible thing, and, uh, yeah, there's that. So, whatever. It's this great thing. Fucking
1: fuck Uh, yourselves. (laughs) Now, while this is happening, uh, the design team, the art team, the programming team are doing all sorts of stuff, and Ken Levine is the word of God. Um, There's an entire system where... Uh, You can alter the atmospheric pressure within Rapture that affected everything from how explosives worked to how enemies would move, and that was tossed. Uh, Level designs were created and tossed. Mechanics were created and tossed, all on the word that, like, Ken Levine would come in, check in on how you were doing, say, nah, I'm not feeling it, do it differently, and you just had to fucking take it. Yeah. Which is incredibly, like, incredibly frustrating, especially if you're working on... um, uh, what's it called? The Crunch.
0: Yeah. Paul Helquist is a guy that apparently just had a very difficult time with him. He took out his frustrations on his uh, section of the game, which would make a lot of sense because he dealt with that medical section. Mm-hmm. That was his area.
1: Someone obsessed with perfection to the point where it, like, he creates. Ugly and ruinous things, and
0: and this is the thing too, where where Levine is literally like not telling him about like key meetings.
1: Oh, he's not invited to key meetings.
0: Yeah, because because they're having like problems. It's it just seems like a very difficult. They're they're pushing you know pushing back the deadline. They're they're the budget's
1: increasing. You, oh god. Okay, literally spending seven days a week working on this game. You're a ghost to your family. Yeah. You are like at the breaking point and you're close to finally just shipping the fucking thing. And then Ken Levine comes out and is like, good news, guys. We get to keep doing this for three more months. (laughs) What a great game we're going to make with all this extra time. And you're just like crying into your cold bowl of ramen, which is your only food that you got to eat all day.
0: Uh, The early play tests are absolutely abysmal, as we uh, alluded to earlier there it's too dark it's hard to tell where to go and atlas is described as a lecherous colonel sanders because he was a weird creepy southern man and it's the first iteration.
1: well they were using um you know because this is people bemoan this now but it is common practice to just grab a bunch of bros and bring them in to play test games as a uh, as a focus group and they just did not get it they just uh like uh What are these fucking guys and dolls looking motherfuckers wailing on each other? Is like a a quote in in this uh, Eurogamer article. (laughs) Um, Atlas, the original voice actor for Atlas, spoke in a southern accent. And like people had been so trained by like um, pop culture by that time to not trust an overly smiley southern voice. Right. So they had to do like what you know, the game was basically over and they had to change it to a new voice actor. Uh, who spoke in an Irish accent because that was more like Lucky Charms, Faith and Begora, Ah, shucks, uh, like the just the American ear like still like had this image of the plucky Irish beleaguered Irishman.
0: Yeah, Levine said of this experience, the focus test guy sort of patted me on the back and said, sorry, this game is going to be a failure. That was one of those moments where you either accept the fact that somebody tells you you're a loser or you decide to double down and say the fight's not over yet. They brightened up the look of it. They uh, changed the voices you said, and they added a quest marker to allow, which is that little I, compass. I don't know how the fuck I would have, I wouldn't have been able to deal with that without having that. In well, the game.
1: in Fort Frolic, they actually disable it, and people consider that one of the strongest points in the game because right. you are free to kind of wander and engage the game at your own, at, at your own, like, kind of pace. Um,
0: There was another play test, though, where they came back with uh, the results. They just couldn't get behind the protagonist.
1: Oh, yes. Good. I'm glad you bring. this up. And that
0: was another one where uh, Levine said he came up with a cheap way to fix this um, with that initial cutscene, but I think it's
1: quite brilliant. It's almost like the first episode of uh, Game of Thrones where, like, you get maybe 20 minutes of just the – not even – you get, like, five minutes of the Starks as just an actual happy family with, like, uh, you know – Ned Stark being a benevolent but strict ruler and, like, the kids all getting along as, like, young lords and ladies... And the rest, you know, that show's been going on forever. And that one moment of grounded happiness still haunts the rest of the show as, like, the place you wish to return. Right. So just having that one sequence with the plane.
0: It's on a plane. They 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 set it in time because I think that's such a brilliant choice. He's smoking on the plane, mm-hmm. which just gives you an exact kind Ni- of— uh,
1: You're in the 1960s.
0: Yeah, like a perfect, perfect timing just by that one thing. Um, he
1: has a wallet with a family. Uh, and,
0: and they allude to the Would You Kindly line— and uh it was definitely of course lost was big at the time so i'm sure it was it was uh oh he
1: yeah he, he said admitted it that it was inspired by lost inspired by that but with that
0: little touch just just gives you just gets you just that much enough into the the role of that player character to like feel like a sense of being with them you mm-hmm. know and and so it's really really brilliant also of the final boss fight i love this quote <laughs> Levine said, it's terrible. You have this great game, and then you end up fighting this giant nude dude. We didn't have a better idea.
1: (laughs) Well, get it? He's Atlas now. He became Atlas, the famous strong nude dude. The nude dude that we all think is famous and strong. Um he has phases. It's you don't even get to kill him. You just like initiate a cutscene where the little sisters take care of him.
0: I don't even remember uh, honestly, uh, but what I do remember is the music, which is absolutely brilliant and incredible. Uh, it's licensed from the forties, fifties, nineteen forties, nineteen fifties. That is, and it's about thirty songs. But also, Gary Shyman composed the original score to meld with the licensed songs. I think he did a brilliant job. Uh, he wrote music for Magnum P.I. in A-Team, uh, as well as 2005's uh, video game Destroy All Humans, which I know is a big one. Um, and most recently, he has been he did all the Bioshocks. He most recently did the Middle-Earth Shadow of War games, mm-hmm. the, the Shadow games, um, Shadow of Mordor and Shadow of War. Um, and he just wanted to add a feeling that is eerie, frightening, and at times beautiful, and I think he did a fucking phenomenal phenomenal game uh job rather all that i really have left here is that uh on the engine uses a heavily modified unreal engine 2.5 with some tech from unreal engine 3 and that they had to bring in their uh one programmer and artist just to specifically focus on the water effects, which at the time were insanely impressive mm-hmm. to anyone viewing them. Just like water gushing in through pipes on the, just even tiny little bits of water like on the floor were, were really amazing looking. Just ocean floor, like just incredible like in, in every iteration of water in that game, like there's just such an attention to detail to it and it just looked absolutely brilliant. And isn't water always kind of, it's like hair and water are always like the test, right? Yeah. And And every like graphic like graphically whenever they showcase stuff. So, of course, if it's a game set underwater
1: and it's trying to be groundbreaking, you got to get that shit right. Um, So they so Bioshock is this new kind of aesthetic, this new playground, these new mechanics all working together. And the final game is genuinely brilliant. Uh, The way that you can, despite the fact that they got rid of all the menus and tabs and like character sheet bullshit, but you can still like upgrade your weapons and work on your uh plasmid load loadout and kind of like build your character as you see fit. I know a lot of people end up just putting as many upgrades they can into the wrench and like camouflage so that literally the entire game is just like finding a quiet spot in the corner, going invisible and waiting for something to pass by so you can whack him in the back I of mean, the that's the
0: cool thing, too, is that this game has that stealth mecha- element to it that, you know, was obviously came from him working on Thief, but mm. the fact that it's there, and I rarely do, like, when I play that game, I don't do anything with stealth, you know?
1: The hacking mechanic, let's talk about that. The,
2: the pipe, hacking mechanic, I like that. I think it's fine.
1: There's probably too much it of it. It felt like a nightmare in, in uh console, but on PC, it was like... Again, this weird energy by the end of the game where you're, like, hacking a camera, doing a pipe puzzle, laying down a trap, and, like, doing all this shit all at the same time. Meanwhile, like, one of the splicers aggroed a big daddy, and they're having a fight in the corner. Right. You've, like, uh, you enrage a character. You hypnotize a character. Everything's going nuts, and you're, like, in control of all these systems that if they had laid laid them all at your feet, you would have just – my eyes would have glazed over. I would have had no – like my bearings would have just been all over the floor.
0: Yeah, for sure. How about some moments? Some moments from the game. Do you have I mean I have a few The Dr. Steinem, like mm-hmm. House of Horrors, then you 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 know, you see you get to view him like doing this nightmarish surgery, trying to create these like Picasso people. Um that was that was phenomenal, just that whole set piece. Uh
1: That the, first encounter with the big daddy where they smash yeah. the splicer through the window. Yep.
0: Yeah just terrifying the Houdini splicer that like pops up behind you as a shadow. And then you turn around and he just
1: fucking like blows up, just disappears. Uh, The plaster splicers that don't make any sounds. And like throughout the, uh, they had that kind of a weeping angel thing where like they're sitting still, you'll turn around and like they'll have moved, but still not moving. That's fucking creepy. That's awesome.
0: The uh, character of Sander Cohen and uh eventual sort of uh the goes from kind of like again it kind of has that System Shock 2 element where you think he's maybe a friend and then mm. he's just terrifying. Oh,
1: there's um the there's a moment that in where Sander Cohen um kind of just starts playing like a I forgot that you know mm-hmm. uh and like he just unleashes a bunch of like very weak splicers at you and 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 the spotlights on you and you realize you're just dancing for him this is just his gross form of dance and so like uh, uh Ken Levine talked to, uh, about how pleased he was that people like get He saw playtesters get into that moment and start, like, timing their wrench smacks in time (laughs) with the music. That's awesome. Performing for this fake villain. And, of course,
0: just the first time you see Rapture. Mm. Just that moment when you you go down that.
1: You see the slideshow. And then the yeah, screen goes up, just goes up and then poof, that one like, fucking squid shit. that appears in every single yeah. that squid gets more like love from like <laughs> the history, gaming historians than like any other character in the game.
0: I mean, it's just a phenomenal game. Uh, I, if you've ever been curious about it. Oh, the
1: thing that if you smoke cigarettes, your Eve goes up, but your health goes down. Yeah. That's funny.
0: That's awesome. Uh, if you've ever been curious about this game, the, pick up the Bioshock collection. It has uh, Bioshock, Bioshock 2, and Bioshock Infinite. I think we'll maybe do uh, a follow-up bonus episode or something like that where we can talk about Oh, there's about
1: like tons of stuff to talk about. Bioshock 2
0: and Bioshock Infinite and all that stuff. They've even just announced they're working on a new Bioshock game. I don't think Ken Levine's involved, though.
1: No, I mean, this was huge news a few years ago, but like uh, after Bioshock Infinite came out, um, you know, the entire team was at their breaking point and then it turned out that um, 2K Marin, which was the spinoff studio that uh, was made by a former, basically the, the team that made Bioshock 2, um, which many people consider a more fun game mechanically, uh, even though they went back to We're not going to get into it. Um, <laughs> they folded or like kind of were, were laid off into non-existence. And so Irrational had to make all the DLC, for infinite hot off of finally finishing infinite which was a five-year development slog and like the stress and just the breaking point made levine just kind of announce one day like hey i don't want to work with a team this big anymore i'm sorry like 70 percent of you are getting laid off mm. and his new studio ghost story games yes. still hasn't produced anything yet. no not
0: yet uh, i have a good quote to wrap this whole thing up you want to hear it yeah Ken Levine says and I think this really encapsulates a lot of the themes of BioShock as well as Ken Levine himself. He says, "My writing tends to deal a lot with the sense of self. Who is this character I'm playing? How well do they know themselves? I think that's because I feel a bit like an alien in my own skin. What's the gulf between the person we think we are and the person we actually are?"
1: You can get a you can get a extra damage upgrade on your shotgun and then like it has all these extra tubes on the shotgun.
0: Steve, I wanted to talk to Jake about this okay I didn't want to talk to Steve about yo
1: this. remember in Bioshock Infinite they give like Elizabeth that like bodice and he, her digital boobs are like we'll craze. talk about
0: Bioshock Infinite on a different episode Steve I don't
1: trust southerners
0: <laughs> Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, if you'd like to check us out on Patreon and, and send us your support that way, go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. If you'd like to send us your support in a more free-ish way, then write us a review on iTunes. That makes such a huge difference for us. We we can always use that sort of boost. If you and- haven't
1: done it yet and you've been listening to the show, please, please, please do it. It just it makes uh, us more visible in the iTunes store And that helps us get new listeners and that helps Keep this whole thing going
0: and uh, uh, on That note as well on Patreon if it's For just five dollars a month you support This show but also you get a weekly Bonus episode uh, ranging From different things such as like monthly Roundups of just what we're watching reading and Playing to uh, interviews To all sorts of Different uh, uh, conversations uh, Around gaming and There's that time where you just get super and high and movies. Scream about
1: space with Henry Zebrowski
0: there you go yeah there was definitely there's oh yeah oh we got more of those coming uh you can check me out on twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho you can follow me on twitter at best jake young all right thanks so much everybody and would you kindly
1: fuck yourself <laughs> i was gonna say but i was trying to think of something else <laughs> no go for it be like ken levine after he dumped his girlfriend strike be confident do you think, he said, that t-shirts. To her? Do
0: you think he said that to her with that
1: would you kindly fuck yourself everybody Good night.